Welcome to the Petro Nerds Podcast with your hosts, Trisha Curtis, CEO of Petro Nerds. This show combines upstream and midstream expertise in a Rocky Mountain showdown. Petronas Podcast. This is episode 78 of the Petronas Podcast. My name is Trisha Curtis. I am the CEO of Petronas and I am your host for the Petronas Podcast. It is Friday, April 7, 2023. Happy Friday. Happy Easter. Lots of folks are not working today. We got the jobs data today. Some interesting numbers there. They held in line with expectations actually slightly above. We will get into that. Um, but special treat for you today is just everything I'm covering in the market, uh, snippets of what I'm doing for clients. And I'll give you, we're going to talk about a few different topics. Um, if we have time, we'll get into the JP Morgan energy paper. It is good. I will at least touch on it. and might get into it deeper in other podcast episodes. Um, but the main things I want to talk about today are, are the OPEC cuts um, and the increases of price. If you uh, woke up Monday morning and you saw price increases that started on, on Sunday night. Um, and so we've had a week of, 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 pretty high prices north of 80 bucks for for WTI. Um, that was OPEC cuts. Uh, we're going to talk about the Fed, the jobs data that we got out today. Um, there was actually, the market was not open, but there was a little bit of coverage on CNBC this morning. Um, we'll talk about the economy. We'll talk about the hours worked. And, um, and we are going to talk about China. So there's been so much going on. I just want to do some recapping of China. And if we have time, we will definitely get into this JP Morgan paper, which is very, very relevant in terms of the energy transition and the exposure to China. Um, and they have some just phenomenal and fantastic data in that, re in that report. So uh, without further ado, WTI is 80.70. We actually saw 81 for WTI this week. It has really held up very well. So um, I, I, I have a lot of expectations for and thoughts on oil prices, which we'll get into in a second. But WTI is 80.70. Brent is 85.12. Seen basically the same thing for Brent. Spent five bucks about WTI. Actually, that that Brent WTI spread is narrowed quite a bit. Um, Henry Hub is just still getting smashed at 201. Um, Toby Rice had an interview on CNBC this week, as did as did Chris Wright on Last Call. Um, we'll ta I'll talk about those as well if I remember. And Dutch TTF is. 1384. So that's also hanging in there. We haven't seen super big movements um, in natural gas that, that exceed unseasonably warm weather across the board in, in the U.S. and Europe um, and the globe is really um, putting a, a lid on gas prices. The 10-year yield that we are seeing some really some smashing of the 10-year yield um, and the 30-year yield and the even even the two-year yield, given everything that's since the banking saga has happened over the last few weeks. Um, and so, but there is lots of volatility there. It keeps going up and down. That being said, the 10-year yield is 3.41% and the 30-year mortgage is about 6.34%. And that's important to watch because a lot of folks are expecting that, you know, every time mortgage rates go down, there is a bit of an uptick in price. This is really cumbersome for the Fed because um, we've actually, we actually saw prices rise in the U.S. last month for homes. Um, and we had all of 2022 prices really rose. We're well north of $500,000 on average for an average home price. Um, so extremely expensive still in the U.S. despite the Fed raising rates. And so that's creating very sticky prices in housing. We, that is impacting, obviously, rental prices, which have been just on a breakneck pace upward. That is the one thing in inflation that hasn't come down at all, hasn't even, hasn't even paused. Um, and services obviously being really – service costs being really high, labor being high. Um, but – I just want to note on the 30-year mortgage, 
Um, you know, most of the world does not have a 30-year fixed-rate mortgage. So when we think about housing crises and, and potential abroad, it's in the UK, it's in New Zealand, it's in Australia, that all had big ramped-up housing booms just like we did during COVID. But now that interest rates have increased, that the fixed rate that's going up is really impacting these guys. So these are two, three, five-year mortgages. They're not 30-year fixed-rate mortgages. So much, much different abroad. Um, and still big issues here where we have 800, $900 million mortgages or uh, even if that's at 3%, those are still really, really high. And if somebody loses their jobs, that's a big deal. Uh, the tech industry has cut um, over, they've been about 38%, I think is the number of the cuts of jobs. And they've, they've cut well north of 100,000 jobs right, as of right now. Um, but that mortgage rate, that spiked to over 7% in October of last year, that came down. And every time it comes down, would have a, big, uh, a little bit of a uh, excitement on the housing sales side, so some replenishment there of, of, of folks getting a little more excited and people locking in and buying homes. And then um, we had, the last time we saw 7% was just in early March. So a whole lot has changed since March. We've talked about this on the podcast. I've been talking about this in presentations and stuff with clients. Uh, you know, the world has really changed a lot since early March, where we uh, had be between the jobs data and the inflation data, especially the inflation data and that stickiness inflation data. Um, the Fed was basically saying we're going to raise rates probably um, a couple more times and and even even more and hold it there. Now, the Fed is still saying they're going to hold it there, but there's a lot of caution and concern on whether they're going to cut. And the market is saying the, the yields that you're seeing on the 10-year, on 30-year, and the 2-year are all saying that they're going to cut. But the Fed is saying that they're not. And that means there's some real issues with Fed credibility there um, because the, the market's not believing the Fed and the, the market says they're going to cut multiple times, which means that we would have a serious recession they would have to cut for, which also means that earnings um, and valuations and PE ratios of companies within the stock market are not reflecting reality either because they should not be priced where they're at or uh, if we're heading in, if we're going to have that deeper recession. So, I, you know, a lot of people tell me that the market's, uh, you know, right or it's, it's, it's skating where the puck is going. I, I don't know if that's true. I, I think the market can be wrong a lot, has been wrong a lot, on especially on yields. So I would be very, very cautious, and I think we have a lot more pain um, coming down the pike. Um, so that being said, now I'll loop back on the OPEC cuts, but we might as well just keep going on, on Fed and jobs. We did get the jobs data today that was north of 200,000. It was in line with expectations. I think it was 236,000. They, they have had revisions to previous months. Um, in, in the several months ago, they were, they were revised upward. Recent ones have been revised slightly downward, but still within, within reason. Um, so they weren't, it wasn't a 500,000 job reads like we had in January, um, but 236,000 jobs added. The unemployment, uh, the unemployment rate actually ticked down to 3.5%. It was expected to stay at 3.6%. That's probably going to be a little bit problematic for the Fed. I doubt that they'll hone in on it because they won't want to, but that is a problem if unemployment rate is going down, not up, because unemployment does need to come up for the Fed to be doing its job. Um, but something really serious to watch, and I've been talking about, if you, if you go on U.S. Bureau of Labor Statistics, you can see the productivity data, and you can get into the nerdiness of this, that our output per hour is down, but our cost per hour is up. Um, but something to note is that the work week is only 34, on average, 34.4 hours. That, that, that is, um, it's not very much, okay? So on most days, on many days, uh, that's what I do in two days. Um, or, or maybe, you know, two in a chunk, but like I, I, it's, I can easily put in 12 to 13 hours a day. And I know that's not, that's not your average person. And that is, that is typical for, for CEOs and small businesses, um, that wear a lot of hats, but 34.4 hours. Wow. That is just an extremely, extremely low number for an average work week. So that's really serious. And that has a huge impact to output per hour for total factor productivity for the U S these are huge, huge things that have 
really big consequences in terms of what we're producing and what our output is. So now this is a perfect time to talk about, given that, that's going to be a bit of an issue for the Fed because productivity is an issue. Now, unemployment, the uh, unemployment figures ticking up a little or, or the folks uh, applying for unemployment, that I believe has, has ticked up a little bit. So the Fed's going to see positive signs and negative signs. It's, it's a mixed bag right now. We don't really have enough consistent data to say anything, but they would have to see some persistent and consistent signs that inflation is really coming down. And that's going to take more pain in the economy for you to see that. So unfortunately, I think you're really going to see unemployment have to tick up and you're going to see, you're going to have to see the fiscal lags go away. And we just haven't yet up until a Student loans are not going to need to be repaid until August, and that could eventually get extended again, as it has been. That's several hundred billion. That's that's at least three hundred, four hundred billion dollars that has not been paid back. So those those younger people, and we did see an uptick in the workforce of younger men coming back into the workforce. Why they weren't working in the first place, I don't know, um, or how they were able to not do that. Probably because of fiscal lags. Um, but that's really serious. And then we do have this employee retention tax credit, where you have a lot of restaurants and businesses that are being paid lots of money to if they retained employees during um, during COVID. And so they're getting these massive these massive checks right now. So that is that that's a stimulus that's enabling them to keep them, but it's also maybe something that they otherwise would have let them go because they see something softening, but they're not. There's also this big talk about, you know, the there's a lot of talk about the Fed not or the employment side of the sector, the service sector, that, hey, we're not going to feel the pain that we we do in normal recessions because we dealt with COVID. And it was so now after COVID, it was so hard to get people back that these companies are just not going to let people go. Well, they will eventually if if the pain gets bad. And, you know, I am not seeing yet going to restaurants if you're if you're going to, to notable places that you, you see and you it's good to just waste watch, you know, look, go to Costco, go to Walmart. Um, go to your normal stores and go to your normal restaurants and just see how what does activity look like on a you know Wednesday night. I can say um, you know there are a couple places I've seen it slightly thinner. I don't know if that's just what's going on there. There could be events in, in Denver, um, but Costco data um, actually was down. And Costco, the you know the big big box store, generally sells to a higher end consumer. And that data point it was one month, but it was down. And so there's concerns and it was discretionary items. So food was up, but obviously food you know the prices and inflation side have really been going up and. You know, I was just talking with an Uber driver today that the cumulative impact of inflation is something that people don't appreciate. We're we hearing a, a across the world, you know, governments and central banks really talk about, well, we're starting to feel the impacts of we're starting to feel the impacts of higher interest rates and interest rates are what's doing this. Well, interest rates certainly could have been a problem in terms of the banking saga that we saw in the banking crisis, but they are not the they are not the issue in terms of um, what's going on with uh, actual inflation in terms of the higher prices we've had month over month yeah so the higher issue the higher prices we've had month over month will have a cumulative impact right just like the cumulative impact of fed rate cuts are having an impact right or sorry fed rate hikes or or as you add them up and then down the road these have lagging impacts and we're feeling that from the inflation side so i do think a lot of things slowing is not just fed raising rates and money getting more expensive for tech companies and capital getting more expensive for green tech it is it is uh, consumers feeling the pain of inflation. And it is so downplayed by the media, and it's not something really appreciated. You know, it's not something the administration wants to talk about or any politician wants to talk about. They're, it's a lot easier for them to say the Fed's doing things wrong. And, and the Fed has done lots of things wrong. They were very, very late to press the go button and get on, get off to the races in, in raising rates and cooling inflation. But um, now there's lots of criticism. And they don't seem like they have it in order. They, um, As I've mentioned, Jerome Powell did not seem like he had his 
um, had his wits about him. He didn't seem confident. Uh, the Fed has not been reassuring. We don't know if the market's discounting on, on the rate side, but the Fed is saying we're still raising, we're still holding. It's pretty confusing out there. Um, and I would say the Fed is not doing a good job there and they have not cooled. They have not yet cooled wage inflation. And so, um, and that, and service cost inflation and, and obviously housing. So this is a big deal. And these are all getting, these th are things that can get embedded into the economy. All right, so that's, the great, that's a great segue into the OPEC cuts and oil prices because there was a reaction by the Biden administration, and I have to bring this up because I just do not feel like uh, the, I don't feel like the administration gets nearly the criticism uh, from anyone on the media, especially from CNBC and, um, and from Bloomberg, um, but I, even elsewhere. So, and especially with regards to oil. So OPEC on Sunday night came out with their cuts. Now, they did have a surprise. It wasn't, I mean, they, they meet usually every month. It was somewhat of a surprise meeting. I mean, they didn't tell anyone about this. The fact that it wasn't leaked was pr a pretty big deal. So if you were watching the market on Sunday evening or Sunday afternoon or just checking on your phone, you would, you would have seen that uh, OPEC had cut 500,000 barrels a day. And that was the initial news. So oil prices immediately were, you know, I knew, we all knew oil prices were going up if you saw that news. Um, and so they went up to 79 and then, I think more of the news flow started trickling out. So the actual cut, which is more, I mean, the, it said 500,000 barrels a day, and then we start seeing more of the data points, which technically it's north of a million barrels a day. And that is really what has got the market moving on oil prices. And the Biden administration's response was that, hey, it's just probably not going to be that big a deal. And so they didn't really want to talk about it too much, obviously, because it is extremely inflationary. And it, it's not the inflation that, I mean, it's, it's, it's troubling inflation in terms of a time that one, the Fed is trying to, you know, lower inflation and they were getting some, some of the single biggest uh, decreases on inflation have been oil prices and energy prices, natural gas prices and, and oil prices have been the single biggest components of the drop in inflation. So it's less of the Fed doing their job right and more of energy prices just coming down. So with energy, with oil prices going back up, that's, that's problematic. It's problematic for a lot of different things, including gas prices, because we're going to continue to have very high volumes of associated gas. But it's really problematic for the overall economy, and not just the U.S., but in the U.K., um, in Europe, um, in, in the Middle East, and in, in the developing world, where these prices are really impacting consumers, as we've talked about before, of lower-end consumers that are paying for food and fuel. And, and, and the impacts on food and fuel and the entanglements with those prices are, are super serious. So having a, a price spike uh, for fuel going into a recession is a pretty big deal. So what happened was, um, you know, I mentioned administration sort of didn't, didn't say much that it, this wasn't going to be as big a deal. They did respond and say this wasn't, you know, now's not the time to do this. Well, if now's not the time to do this, I mean, then uh, they don't have any relationship with them. And we will get to that in a moment of the Saudi, Iran, China stuff when we talk about China. Um, but this administration does not have a, an ability to call up Saudi Arabia, talk to them. There is no really good standing in the Middle East. And, and, and I'm not saying that um, it's that the Saudis are, are doing things right or, or, or the Iranians or anyone, but it is, it's extremely important to have a line of communication. Um, and these are those kind of, these are those moments where um, we don't, if you don't have a line of communi communication with somebody you call so-called ally, this is pretty serious. And we are seeing Saudi Arabia being really pulled into the arms of China. Saudi Arabia is going to be very good at putting, you know, the U.S. Um, or putting us off one off the other, uh, of playing both sides really well. They're, they're going to be able to do that because they're right in the middle. Unlike Iran, Iran needs China and Russia needs China, but Saudi Arabia is right in the middle, so they're going to be able to play both sides really well. Uh, but that being said, you know, it wasn't like the White House picked up the phone and said, I mean, they may have said, hey, you, this isn't great, but the Saudis don't really care. 
And if I'm an oil exporting country and all my money's coming from oil and I'm looking into this market and I'm seeing we're headlong into recession, my reaction is probably going to be to cut oil prices. Now, not that it doesn't, I'm saying if I'm speaking from the Saudi perspective, it, now it usually rarely works out. Um, when, you're, when, you're cutting in t when you're cutting output to try to support prices, it's telling you something. And I would say this is, um, I, I, this is where oil prices have probably been the best leading indicator, and, and not appropriately, but have been the best leading indicator and telltale for the economy over the course of this of 2023. They've been very volatile, uh, which is natural with the economy. And they've uh, we there was a huge overreaction, obviously in Saint, on St. Patrick's Day, where we saw you know oil prices go to 69 bucks with this incredible banking saga and, and all these uh, bank failures and fallouts. Um, oil prices went to 69 bucks. Now the market didn't. Um, the, the tech actually rallied on the back of that because uh, 10 year yields um, and uh, the yield prices and interest rates, yield prices went down or interest rates were suspected to go down. They're expecting that the Fed's going to cut. And so tech is rallying. Keep in mind, tech is rallying before there's been a change in interest rate cuts. So that tells you one, that those aren't real. That's not ma a material shift. They're still cutting jobs. And that means that they haven't felt they didn't feel the pains quite yet. They might be feeling before of higher interest rates, um, but they're not feeling the benefits yet. And yet the market's already pricing that in. And so it means that the market can be wrong, has been wrong, can be wrong. We'll, we'll have to revert. Um, but that being said, so oil prices were $69 and were, was overacting. That probably was not showing you the fundamentals reflect when they can move that quickly. And we've talked about that before. There's a lot of volatility in oil prices when you have thinly traded markets, especially on WTI where things just get out of whack. And so when, when WTI is as thinly traded as it has been over the last couple of years, you can have pretty big swings upside or downside on oil prices. And th that's meaningful to think about. So $69 was not a re uh, an actual reflection. When oil prices move five or 10 bucks that quickly, that's not a reflection of fundamentals or reality. Now, that being said, that is exactly, and there was a lot of short, there has been a lot of short covering. And that's kind of exactly what the fat Saudis have talked about is that, hey, we are basically, they responded and said, we did this because we are, or the analysis behind this is that they were doing this because of short covering, right? Is that the Saudis leading OPEC plus were doing this cut because there was a lot of short sellers in the market. They wanted to make sure that the short sellers and folks on that side of the trade um, were, were, were kept on their toes and that they wanted, they say they wanted crude to better reflect fundamentals. And I'm not saying crude was um, not or accurately appreciating fundamentals. It, it probably needs to better reflect fundamentals, but you know, artificially inflating it or um, is also not impact is also um, doesn't mean it's reflecting fundamentals. So going from 69 to 80 as quickly as we did, neither of those are probably fundamentals. Um, it does kind of tell you probably where the high bar is and maybe I'm not saying where the low bar is going into recession, we're going to see a sell off in oil prices. That's just going to happen because it's, it's that bellwether. Um, but it's also not a good sign that the Saudis are going into this looking and saying, hey, we're trying to prop this up as we're going into recession. So, and it's pretty telling because it's telling you that how they see um, the Chinese economy, the reopening. I don't think uh, they are, they're not going to say that vocally, but I don't, I, I don't think they see that as robust, nor does the world, does anyone on the other side see that as robust as folks thought or, you know, had overplayed. Just like the, 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 um, a lot of the Chinese stock market, the Hong Kong market, really had a big boon to it. Uh, everybody went crazy um, when China did the zero COVID, the lifting of zero COVID. Um, we've since seen that that calmed down considerably. Um, and so, uh, again, the market sort of got ahead of that. And we have not seen the economy respond um, nearly as optimistically or nearly as well um, as a lot of folks had projected. So clearly, the, the, the Chinese economy is going through a lot of pains um, and lingering pains. And there's a lot going on within China. 
that being said, you know, clearly they're they're increasing their oil demand and they're sort of getting back to some normalization. But it's not the it's not the robust levels that was expected, or you wouldn't have needed this cut. So the Saudis sort of wanting to keep this floor of eighty dollars. If they're chasing this, this is a this is a benefit to U.S. shale producers. It doesn't mean that public companies are going to spend any more on U.S. shale. That they're going to increase their budgets um, considerably. But it does mean that there's a little bit here and there. And I do think that the the very, very low natural gas prices and sustained low gas prices and the moving of rigs around, you are seeing a little bit of compression, I think, on rig prices. On um, at, I'm not saying massive, but I think the the incredible inflationary feel that we had, you know, at the end of last year over, over the course of 2022 is probably coming off a little bit, and that's not a bad thing for the industry to continue to drill holes um, and to uh, and to add production um, and and bring it online. So when we look at the actual numbers for the production cuts, what they said was um, they so this was a meeting that was. Uh, it didn't get leaked, and there was a lot of commentary on that, how impressive that was, because a lot of stuff gets leaked in advance. So the Saudis probably were controlling this mostly on their own and then, you know, agree, had everyone agree to this, and then when it came out, it had not been leaked before. So that's that's impressive in and of itself. Um, but so I'm um, coming from the website from the OPEC. It says, uh, quote, the meeting noted the following voluntary production adjustment announcement uh, on April 2nd, 2023 by Saudi Arabia, 500,000 barrels a day, Iraq. 211,000 barrels a day, United Arab Emirates, 144,000 barrels a day, Kuwait, 128,000 barrels a day, Kazakhstan, 78,000 barrels a day, Algeria, 48,000 barrels a day, Oman, 40,000 barrels a day, Gabon, uh, 8,000 barrels a day, starting May until the end of 2023. This will be in addition to the production adjustments decided on the 33rd OPEC and non-OPEC ministerial meeting. So this is the 48th meeting, so the one way back when. Um, so... The above will be in addition to the announced voluntary adjustment by the Russian Federation of 500,000 barrels a day until the end of 2023, which will be from which will be the average production levels as assessed by the secondary sources for the month of February 2023. So, and then it continues to say, accordingly, this will bring the total additional voluntary production adjustments by the above mentioned countries to 1.66 million barrels a day. End quote. Now that if that we may not materialize all of those cuts, and that's what the administration was sort of leaning on, and some others have suggested as well, we may not materialize all those cuts. Um, but if they do, that it's it's pretty significant, and it's important to point out that right now Saudi Arabia is, I mean, so so Saudi Arabia is over 10 million barrels a day of production. We are seeing um, still over 10. They're about 10.3 million barrels a day of production. So they have not had a consistent month over month decrease. They've been hanging about there for the last couple months. And that we are still seeing for January production numbers, according to OPEC, that um, Russia was still at over 11 million barrels a day output. So, but they are expecting them to come down and showing them the forecasts of their production um, for over the course of the year, they're expecting them to come down by 500,000 barrels a day. So this could be a bit of a cover for Russia to actually decrease output. And that's a benefit for everyone, right? That was going to happen, but that's a benefit for all of OPEC and Russia to have these prices um, pushed up. And that does, you know, prices going up a little does help Russia because the, they, they have seen some pretty severe discounts to their crude oil prices. So I would continue to watch crude oil. It might be over, a little overdone. I mean, whether or not we're going to stay here, I don't think we're going to go up much from here. We could, you know, but everyone came out, uh, every analyst came out on Monday morning, said, oh, my gosh, we're going to we're going to $120 a barrel. We're going to $100 a barrel in the next quarter. I mean, there's just not a lot of, sub there's not a lot of demand fundamentals to support that. So in, in that, that could happen because of supply. And we are in a really, really unique place thinking about as we're headlong into recession, what does this look like? And, and you know, banking crises, um, the Fed doesn't have stability, going to have to maintain interest rates, oil prices adding to inflation. 
puts puts the coal economy in a tailspin. I mean, higher oil prices are, are not good for the economy. They're not good for consumption. And this could be something that, you know, maybe $80, it's okay, but I would be very, very careful of this this increase in oil price, the impact it does to the consumer. It's not going to feel good at the pump. Um, and this is going to, it, it, as you're already leaning into, uh, you've had several months of very high inflation across the entire world, um, this, this is another pain point. So hard for the Fed, hard for the economy, may not end well for OPEC and, and pricing as they think. So um, wishful, you know, wanting higher oil prices is one thing, getting them into a recession is another thing. Now that all being said, there are a lot of reasons why oil prices will likely be maintained in this recession. Um, and that's because you simply have this very, very unique geopolitical backdrop that we've never had before. And it's going to be very hard to, that will keep, um, to a degree, will keep a floor on prices. Now, that being said, yes, we can have massive sell-offs and people can get scared and the market can do what the market's going to do and traders can do what traders will do. But the underlying fundamentals will probably not going to be supportive of a massive sell-off because we simply have too much geopolitical risk. And um, there are some serious things to be thinking about in terms of Russia, China, and trade flows accrued and potential um, kinetic war, just potential risk scenarios of China going kinetic and, and actually doing things or just creating volatility um, within the Taiwan Straits or creating volatility within the China, South China Sea and sanctions and what that would mean and how China could get around, um, you know, how China could get around additional, uh, how they could get more barrels from Russia as opposed to um, what's coming from the sea, including Russia, including Saudi Arabia and Iran. Um, so that is a, an additional lifeline that we should be thinking about as well. And that's important uh, because we're, we can we can get to China now because that's the, obviously always one of my favorite topics. Um, but that's there's one thing to think about is that okay, Russia um, or China gets the bulk of their crude over half their crude right now from Russia, Saudi Arabia, Iran, probably one to two million barrels a day from Iran. That's all of Iranian crude because Iran has been on sanctions for years. All of Iran's crude, their exports, what they're not using is going to China. Maybe some's a little going to North Korea and any other unsavory country that's willing to take it, but that's all been going to China. So that's a pretty important relationship. That's a great, great relationship for China to have because they're getting all that crude. That crude's not fighting on the market. We don't know what they're paying for that. So that's pretty serious. Um, likely they have stockpiled a decent amount of crude oil during COVID and during the years of COVID, especially with those lockdowns. I'm gathering they stockpiled, they have been stockpiling crude, but they stockpiled a decent amount. What those exact numbers are are unclear or what their storage levels are. Um, but that's something to think about. And then they get, they're getting about 2 million barrels a day from Saudi Arabia as well. And that, that, a relationship and what's going on between Saudi Arabia and, and Iran and Beijing's role in that is really serious on a number of different levels. Um, but it's very serious in conjunction with their continuity with Russia, which obviously uh, uh, Xi Jinping was just in Russia recently and reaffirming that, that relationship. Um, and there's a talk, even this JP Morgan report talked about increased, not just, not just increased crude flow and energy going from Russia to China, but um, energy armaments and sales and ammunitions going from China to Russia. So that's very, very real um, and super serious. So if, if we think this is one-sided, it's not. You know, the, the China is not just giving Russia money, okay, and money that they desperately need or access to money. They're giving them lots of other things, and China's getting lots of other things in return, including coal and grain and oil. Um, but that being said, thinking about that triad is really important, is that if you were to think, okay, we sanctioned China or there's volatility going on in the South China Sea or anywhere that China's involved, would they be able to get that oil from Saudi Arabia or Iran? No, some of those might be risks, right? Sea lanes of communication, boats in the water, ships in the water, that might be an issue. But anything coming from Russia, and this is really important to point out, you know, they're getting a million, um, what, a million to two million barrels a day via pipeline. Some, obviously, via, you can get that via ship as well. So 
I would, uh, you know, the, we increased crude oil, crude by rail massively when we had the Bakken boom and we couldn't get enough, we, we couldn't get pipelines built and we didn't, couldn't get them built enough fast, built, build them fast enough. You can put crude on rail cars and you can put them also on, um, you can put them in trucks. So I would not, um, I would not underestimate the ability for China to get increasing volumes of crude from Russia via the border, via rail cars um, and trucks. Another big benefit for China that all those troops um, that were on the border of Russia and China historically for, for decades and decades are now all in Ukraine. It really benefits China of they don't have to worry about their border and they can increase and free up that trade. And this is definitely going to be one of them that if there was a wartime situation, I think you could um, easily and feasibly see uh, cross-border trade on a, on a rail side and a truck side for, for crude really increase. So that's just a little side note. Um, and that's important to point out because China just, uh, you know, at the back of their two party sessions, their Chinese, cons the Consultative Party Congress and their National Party, the NPCC and their CPC, the two big meetings, the two polarities that, that they had, or two sessions that they had at the beginning of March. At the end of that, they had a, um, they basically announced very publicly that they had uh, a, not a peace deal, but a rapprochement between uh, Iran and Saudi Arabia. And they had delegations, they had folks from Iran and Saudi Arabia in China, and they had uh, basically said, hey, they, these guys are willing to do a peace deal, and we are, we're the ones brokering this. And so that's really big for China to say, we're on the world stage, we are brokering peace deals, peace deals that, you know, you, the U.S. or, or European Union couldn't do, um, and we are, we mean business. So when they say, hey, we're looking to broker a peace still in the Ukraine, that's not going to happen, but it makes them look really good. And they can play this up with the UN. They can play this up with others. I've seen, I've seen U.S. politicians say this is great. You know, what, what's the harm in doing this? It sounds a lot to me like, you know, the cooperation on climate change. There's some serious, serious issues with this. Um, because if I'm China and I have very good close allies as, as like Saudi Arabia and Iran, but I'm concerned about them maybe fighting with each other in the future when I need something, I would like to get that sorted out now. Now, this is not a marriage. This this is not a good marriage. This is not a. This is beyond. It's not even a marriage. This is basically just friendly acquaintances or, or even acquaintances that just aren't killing each other um, for the moment. So the Middle East is is rife with uh, peace deals gone awry. Um, so I would be careful to think this is a long term thing. But this is meaningful in the context of if, if the fact that China could do this is it's pretty important. And there are some benefits to the Saudis if they could. Um, you know they have this ongoing war in Yemen. If they if that could be solved or that would save a lot of money on their part. They're spending um, they're spending tons of money, billions and billions of dollars on this war in Yemen, which the which the Iran is backing um, the Houthis in Yemen. So there's a lot of issues that could be potential that it could be positive for both of those countries in terms of a cost standpoint. Um, but it's not good for it, it doesn't look good for Israel. And um, there is a, a I mean, there's a lot of volatility going on in Israel, um, and I won't get into that. But um, that is a big issue between uh, between Iran and Israel. So, any it's it's nothing simple within the Middle East, and and uh, and China um, likely knows that that's not simple. But this looks good for them. They're playing this up considerably, and this um, has a lot to do. This does have a lot to do with energy. Um, and we also saw we also saw the Saudis come out and say we are doubling down in our a lot of it was already planned investment but they're doubling down in their downstream investments in China so it's a guaranteed market for their crude both for Iran and Saudi Arabia when you think about you know folks talking about the energy transition and we think about the folks actually leaning into the energy transition which is the EU and the US um, basically the rest of the world isn't and this is a really nice guarantee for Saudi Arabia. Um, to have a long-term long -term export place to take their crude. And so 
if you're thinking of, of why they've, they've turned into China, this is a, a big portion because of it. Um, and a lot of that was also because of so much U.S. shale. We, our, our demand for Saudi crude is, has dwindled um, considerably from millions of barrels a day to, to we, we, it's a fraction of what it was. I mean, Nigerian barrels went from a million or two billion barrels a day to nothing in, in terms of imports, and Saudi Arabian barrels have come down considerably. So they need markets for their crude, and it works out well when they have refineries in those markets as well. Okay, so enough of the foreign minister talk. That's still ongoing. Something to watch. You're, you'll see in the news. You hear on Chinese media a lot. They every time there's something foreign, they they really they really hype it up. But there are some photos that you can look at. Um, on Bloomberg, has, there's some some folks on Twitter that have put it out of a of a picture between uh, Saudi Arabia, Beijing uh, official in the middle, and then the foreign ministers from Saudi Arabia and Iran putting their hands on top of each other. Um, not shaking hands, but putting their hands on top of each other. So on to Taiwan. Now, if you uh, haven't noticed the uh, in, or, or aren't aware, the um, the leader of Taiwan, she has been in. She she took a transit visit. Apparently, this is relatively normal, but she's going uh, to Latin America. There's lots going on between Latin America and China, so this is not this is important to, for Taiwan to go. Um, but she stopped in. Uh, she McCarthy uh, wanted to go. Uh, the Speaker of the House. Senator McCarthy wanted to go to Taiwan. I think the Taiwanese basically said that, hey, let's not do that right now. And so she came. They met with um, Speaker McCarthy, and there was a Republicans and Democrats met with her at the Reagan Library, I believe, in California. Um, and um, Hudson Institute gave her an award. Um, since then, and if you listen to the Beijing Hour, which is a China China news podcast, um, that they've actually said they are. Uh, they didn't say they're sanctioning the Hudson Institute, but they are sanctioning a lot of other folks um, within that, and they are putting uh, putting in, they said, effective measures against the Hudson Institute, against the Reagan Library, and all these all these people involved. Um, so there is a 2024 election in Taiwan, um, and it, it, that's really serious because the former leader of Taiwan is actually in Beijing right now. Um, so that. There's a lot of complexities and a lot of messiness. And so he's obviously, Beijing is trying to, and China is trying to woo um, um, Taiwan in. And he's made considerable statements. If you listen to Chinese media, you'll, you'll hear and see these of, of how great it is and what their ties are. So that's complicated. On top of that, um, and this is why I say this gets really, really complicated with, with Europe and the energy transition in China. Um, because we are, we are uh, the, the tensions with China are growing. People don't want to say we're in a Cold War. This is absolutely Cold War, and it's, get, it's getting warmer by the minute. Um, but so France, um, the, Emmanuel Macron, the president of France, and Ursula von der Leyen, the EU commissioner, are in China right now as we speak. And they brought lots of people with him, just like just like Olaf Scholz did. He brought all these CEOs with him. So China's going through some serious stuff with the U.S. And we've got EU's got no backing or no care for what, what we're thinking we're doing for these. They're basically saying to China by doing this visit, we don't care what your human rights abuses are. We don't care, you know, how entangled with you on the supply chains. We just desperately need your trade, and we desperately need your solar panels. So we're going to go ahead and do these visits. And we care way more about our, uh, you know, being able to sell cars into your market. I um, mean, having this good market relationship because, you know, hey, we did this with Russia and it worked out just fine. That's basically the message that we're getting from Europe. Um, there were some serious issues on the Taiwan piece with Lithuania where, where Lithuania basically uh, said they recognized Taiwan and um, since they China really cut them off of a lot of trade. So there's a lot of fears, I think, within Europe that they're going to cut off that there would be trade cut off. Now, Europe's going to be in a bind no matter what, because when it comes to the energy transition and the stuff that they're buying from them, and solar panel exports from China to Europe increased by 122% over the course of 2022. Now, 
I know Europe thinks something. They think that this is energy security. They think that when they put up these solar panels, even though the sun doesn't shine all the time, and so they have a lot of intermittency there, but they think that this is helping them with energy, energy security. There's two big problems with this, and that is that um, there's a capital cost involved, right? So you have to buy that solar panel, um, and you have to refresh it. So there's a capital cost refreshment where it, it's not being baked in. So I think they're probably baking in 20 to 30 years for the average life of that solar panel. It's probably a lot lower. Could actually be as low as 10 years or 15 years. The guarantees, the warranties on these are even significantly lower. And we're hearing that solar panels, some solar panels don't even last as long as one to two years, which means your risk of capital refreshment costs are, could be considerably higher. And that is very, very damning for supply chain entanglements. And also just, I mean, being able to turn your lights on if you've put allocated a certain amount of your grid to that, which means that you'll be relying then more on your base load when that's not working. And so very serious issues there. Same for, for these wind turbines. Um, and that doesn't, you know, that doesn't even address the fact that this is, uh, those solar panel exports, by the way, almost all that solar panel is coming from the province of Xinjiang. Exports from Xinjiang are now $30 billion over in 2022 to the rest of the world. This is despite the U.S. putting sanctions on the province of Xinjiang. A lot of the stuff that has been made there goes now to Vietnam and to Malaysia and to other countries and then is exported. So a lot of solar panels and stuff that we're getting are still coming from there, but they are, uh, they're going into these other countries. And we've seen China do a remarkable job with that um, in terms of working with different, uh, getting into countries very quickly. They've always had a foothold in these, these countries, but they're really big in Latin America right now. Um, and they just got Honduras to sign a, two big things with Latin America and China was, um, they just got Honduras to uh, recognize China and denounce Taiwan. And so they, they denounced their relationship with Taiwan or basically said they're not acknowledging that Taiwan is a country and they believe in, in the one China principle and they recognize China. So that's gonna really help them on trade and everything. Um, and that's really serious because that is Latin America that's a lot closer to home to the US. Um, and Brazil just came out and said that they're, gonna, they're happy to trade in, in local currency in Chinese currency with them. That they're pretty big ramifications as the as China as we're seeing this where China's working to decouple from the dollar. Now they're not just willing wanting to decouple from the dollar because they don't like America and they want to you know the America to fall and then that, that might be true. Um, but it's because they want to insulate themselves from sanctions. And the only reason you want to insulate yourself from sanctions is if you're going to do things the rest of the world doesn't like and they're going to sanction you, such as you know volatility, war, all kinds of things. Um, so when you see increased, uh, th this is what Russia has done with China, right? Is the way for Russia to get money is they're doing everything in local currencies between China and Russia. So pretty serious if we see this ex on an accelerated level. But it's also also important because so much of rare earth, so much of the critical minerals of lithium and copper and everything is coming from Latin America, um, and China has a China has basically a hold on that with with their um, with their big companies. So they're getting a lot of that from Latin America. And, I mean, they're processing nearly all of the critical minerals: lithium, nickel, cobalt, copper. You name it. All of it's being processed um, within all of it that's being processed within China. This J.P. Morgan paper does an incredible job of talking about that and talking about it's. It's actually they they make it. Um, they put in some data points that are even bigger than what the International Energy Agency says, and they put some heat temperatures with that of how hot you have the industrial side of the, the degrees that you have to heat up to, which means you're going to need coal uh, or natural gas, and China does not have the natural gas fired power, so they're going to use, use coal generation to actually process stuff. So it's very intensive. It's very, very dirty to process these critical minerals. Okay, so that, that was a little side note on Latin America. Just something to watch as that, that we are also seeing issues with, you know, China has increased a lot of their footprint within Mexico. Um, you know, something that is being talked about by the administration, but not directly correlated to China. There was a lot of uh, China folks that were uh, concerned that, you know, when when uh, 
Biden was talking in his State of the Union address about China that he did not actually mention the fentanyl trade. Um, and that has uh, fentanyl has killed 70,000 people last year alone. So it's something that's a pretty big issue that it, it is. Uh, there's some great experts and great podcasts um, I can I can attach to this on. I just listened to one on an expert on um, on the fentanyl trade from China and how how serious that is coming into the U.S. and how they've worked through Latin America and up. Um, so there's there's from from oil to fentanyl to uh, to rare earths. I'm sorry, not oil, but rare earths. And there's a lot of trade going on. And so there's also where uh, this this friend showing or reshoring um, something that I think the U.S. has to be careful of, of supply chain entanglements and doing business with certain businesses if they are Chinese businesses within within Mexico or within Latin America. That's also very serious. OK, but back to back to Europe and China. Um, at, you know, so we got this stuff going on in Taiwan. That's the backdrop. You know, Europe uh, has been pretty silent on all of that. Um, so we've got this three-day visit from France, uh, from Emmanuel Macron. He's joined by Ursula von der Leyen. They are in, they are in China right now. And it, very interesting because they're actually traveling. They, they brought business leaders with them as well. Um, they are talking about nuclear deals. So Europe is, or sorry, China has really promoted this. Um, if, you, if you go to the Beijing Hour and you listen to that news thing, the last three podcasts have been all, the daily podcasts have been all about this, this visit from France. So it's a big deal for, again, like I said, with the Iran-Saudi deal and this brokering peace and, and then and Xi Jinping being on the world stage, it looks really good for him. And he's basically being able to say, hey, you know, Europe's not against us. They are, you know, democracies. They're um, liberal countries and we're doing business with them. So it really puts a wedge between uh, the U.S. And, the and, and, and Europe. And it's important to appreciate that there's only two entities really pushing this this energy transition stuff, which is buying all this stuff from China, and that is the EU, that is the EU and the U.S. So, you know, when it comes to volatility and and not just all the stuff related to energy transition stuff that's not in the energy transition, like these critical minerals like graphite and stuff that, um, like ammunitions and, and the stuff that you need to build stuff for your military, it, it, China still has a hold on that. And that's going to be really, really tricky um, when we're talking about relations and long-term relations with, with Europe. So it, it does put a wedge between the U.S. and Europe, and that's that's very important to think about in terms of geopolitical complexity. Um, there was an article last week on the Financial Times about a ammunitions manufacturer that's trying to supply ammunitions. It's within Europe trying to supply ammunitions to the war in Ukraine and not having access to power. That is something that um, a lot of us are studying. This is again within the JP Morgan re report. They do a great job talking about grid stability and power. Um, so we, you have had declining power generation in Europe and UK and and a lot of um, or, or sorry in Germany and the UK but in a lot of Europe as well. And so if you're actually trying to electrify your grid, if you're trying to uh, put more more electrification in and, and plug in your, your cars, you actually need increased power generation, not declining power generation. So that's a, a serious thing, but this is sort of case in point of this ammunitions manufacturer has been fighting for power because they're fighting with a uh, a data center, and this is just, I mean, unbelievable, but it's a TikTok data center that they're fighting for this power generation for. So it just is a perfect example of the uh, long-term consequences that are going to be felt in the medium and long-term for, for actually, you, you can't decline your power generation um, and still be able to live in the modern-day world, and you're not going to be able to make things. So it's not just ammunitions, but it's your data centers. It's your, you know, if you want to make chips in America, you're going to have to have stable power generation. It's not going to be coming from intermittent wind and solar. Um, or you know you may have wind and solar, but you're going to have to have a very very stable base load and a lot of stuff that you're manufacturing. If you look at any country that makes things like China, like Taiwan, um, like anybody that's that's still making things that we've outsourced all that to, 
their gener electrical power generation is increasing and it's largely their base is largely um, is largely coal or, or natural gas. And, and because that they, they need that intense heat, they need that intense power to be able to do something, to be able to make stuff with. So anyways, back to the three-day trip, France uh, France, and, and Ursula von der Leyen are there, and the, Emmanuel Macron is actually traveling with Xi Jinping, and that is a bit unprecedented, so he's actually going, um, actually traveling to a city with him. I think that is a big publicity thing as well, and it does also show that, you know, that these European leaders are in there for the business front. So they have, uh, if you listen to uh, South China Morning Post and some of the stuff that they've reported in their, within their podcast, they've talked about, you know, these guys are here to help rein in, um, the European leaders are help here to rein in Beijing and help Beijing talk to Russia and try to get an end to this war. It doesn't look like that's what they're doing. It looks like they're on business deal trips. And if I'm Ukraine, I, I would be a little bit concerned about this because um, I, I, is the... They should be basically saying, hey, we're going to reduce our business deals with you unless you end this, help us end this war. And that doesn't seem to be, obviously, what's happening. This seems to be very business-oriented, and this seems to be um, almost almost Europe saying, hey, we're, we're not with the U.S. on this, and we're, we don't want to cut you off from anything. That gets also further complicated, given that the Netherlands is, the big, is one of the biggest uh, chip manufacturers and has also agreed to help uh, limit exports to China. Um, and this also puts, we, we, we've seen um, the leader of, of Japan actually go to Ukraine. He's been stepping on the world stage. So lots and lots going on in this space that is super tied in and, and very, very intrinsic and very tied in. And, and it matters because it's all, it's all tied up into critical minerals and, and energy security and everything going on um, and the health of these economies. And I'm not going to be able to go into it in depth because I want to keep this podcast on the shorter end for you guys. Um, but this energy transition paper, and it's called, it's the JP Morgan's annual energy paper that they put out. It's absolutely worth a read. I have a little bit of criticism. It's a funny image that they have up front. They have like uh, teenagers that is a windmill um, and, or is, is a wind turbine and a, and a chick that's a solar chick. And they're teenagers, and they say, "This is the title of this is Growing Pains: The Renewable Transition um, in Adolescence." And you know, I'm a little critical of that title because I think the energy transition is sort of falling apart at the seams before it's even off, got off to the races. So I think it's more on life support um, than in adolescence, because um, adolescence suggests that it's uh, you know we're just going through some growing pains, but we're going to get through there. And the body of their paper doesn't actually support that. The body of their paper is extremely damning in terms of you know, where we're at and how we get there. There is some positive stuff on heat pumps, a little more than uh, positive than I expected from the technological growth and the ability for heat pumps to work. Um, and But they said, you know, heat pumps also work as um, air conditioning or HVACs. So the offsets in, in CO2 emissions um, are likely going to be neutral because the folks that uh, didn't have HVACs before in Europe, now with a heat pump, will be using them more in the summer, and that may offset CO2 emissions. They also point in the beginning, the uh, and something that Chris Wright and lots of folks really talk about this, but is the is the, the fossil fuel share, and I don't, again, I call it traditional fuels, but fossil fuel share are primary energy since 1965. And so, you know, they show the line of basically it's, it's under 95%, and then it has, it has come down very, very slowly, and it's still above 80% now. So even with all, it has declined from 2015 to 2020, but even, even to then, it's, we're still north of 80% for fossil fuel share in the pool. And so they get, into, um, they, they get into really good explanations about how much power, how much, how much traditional fuels and crude oil, natural gas, and coal are actually used in power generation and um, and actually, and in societies and primary fuel generation, 
versus just electricity generation. And the problem is that things like where you could decarbonize electricity all you wanted to, but then the rest of it you have not decarbonized. And that's not just your, your transportation, that is your industrial side. So the industrial side where, and it's especially in the developing world where most of that industrial place is going is in places like China, is that that is um, extremely, uh, extremely carbon intensive. Um, and largely because those are good conductors of heat um, and good power, but you're using coal for most of that. And so your industrial sector is very, very hard to decarbonize. And areas like cement, where China controls the bulk of that, are also extremely hard to decarbonize. And so, I mean, the data points are fantastic. I encourage you to check it out, and I'll go through it in more detail in another podcast. Um, they also talk about the, uh, th they show really great graphs on um, U.S. shale reinvestment, which is down to all-time, we're basically, uh, we're, we're just off our all-time lows, but U.S. shale reinvestment is incredibly low. This is really important to think about in the context of where we sit um, in, terms of a, in, in terms of a powerhouse, in terms of our, our geopolitical leverage. If, we're, if we let output of natural gas or or oil decline, we're putting ourselves in a position that's extremely geopolitically vulnerable. Um, and it's, it's not a place we want to be in. So it, it, it hurts a lot of the economy, but it also just our ability to be resilient from an energy security standpoint and a cost security standpoint um, it, is extremely, extremely important and folds into national security and economic security. Um, so um, that, that isn't gotten into in here, but the data points are really good. And the, the last thing I'll say on it is uh, it does a pretty good rip on the levelized cost of energy. And, you know, a lot of folks struggle with this. And it's because it's, it's sort of the only thing they have. So when they want to know what the price of wind and solar is, everybody looks to the levelized costs of energy. And it's many, it's not a good measurement because it's not, you're not comparing apples to apples. Um, so this is, it's, it's a really good quote. I'm just going to read this. It says, um, <clears throat> quote, levelized cost of energy, they say, quote, is a distraction if you're trying to understand um, if you're trying to understand total system cost of electricity, why? When computed for individual generation or storage technologies, levelized cost of energy does not properly take account of A, the need for backup power, storage, and reserve margins to maintain system reliability. That's pretty big um, because those are all big components of, of the intermittency for, for both wind and solar. Um, the, B, the value of electricity supplied at different times of the day or year, also really important. Um, and C, the need to overbuild wind and solar capacity to meet demand in deeply decarbonized systems. Those are three really, really serious things. So he also says, in other words, LCOE, Lovelace Cost of Energy, only measures the cost of the marginal megawatt hour of um, MWH, megawatt hour, of wind or solar power, and typically does not include any of these other capital or operating costs. That's why I generally ignore it, and I'm amazed at how many people still don't realize that LCOE is, mis is a, a misleading basis for estimating total system costs to governments, electricity consumers, and taxpayers. This paper also goes on to talk about the um, instability and the potential for taking developed countries and turning them into developing countries and deindustrialize the accelerated deindustrialization of the West, which I have spent a, a lot of work on. Um, and it doesn't. It doesn't talk about sort of deep, deeper ge geopolitical ramifications. We can draw those own conclusions, but it's extremely serious in talking about the hollowing out of the industrial sector in um, in Europe, and uh, that you can't. Uh, and the problem is, is that all these countries and societies, which they have in here, have these massive plans to go green and to electrify their grids, which means, and to electrify their economies, which means they will have to add generation, power generation capacity. They can't decrease it. And that's what they've been doing is decreasing it. And then they've also been just decreasing demand. And so these are having, these are compounded impacts to your economy that are very, very meaningful. But it's, it, this paper does an exceptional job 
of really getting your head wrapped around um, intermittency and things of wind and solar and not comparing apples to apples, especially when it comes to this levelized cost of energy, and that you have to have backup power generation. Um, the book I mentioned, Not Zero, um, has a couple interesting an anecdotes, but one of them is that is that in, in, your, in the UK specifically, you have to pay basically for that backup power generation. So if you um, if you're looking to have just wind and solar and you don't want to rely and you have you have to have backup for your base load, um, but the problem is that you have to pay to have that power plant running all the time, right? You have to have the people there and you have to have it ready in case you need it. Um, so that cost that you have for not using it is really important. And then it's not running as efficiently, um, probably as efficiently from a cost standpoint, but probably also not efficiently from uh, an actual energy standpoint, an emission standpoint, because it's, you're, you're just pulling on it when you need it. So there's a lot of just externalities to this that I think are extremely important to understand. The whack-a-mole thing with CO2 that you're not doing much and the huge, huge geopolitical ramifications. So with that, I know I've talked a lot. We will get into this paper uh, another point another time, but please take a look at it. It's, it's really, really good. Um, everybody in the energy industry is, is taking a look at it. Um, um, and I uh, hope you guys have a great uh, long holiday weekend, and we will talk to you soon, folks. Bye.